Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a famous face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. I'll also get some practical tips from an expert to help you get to grips with your finances. In this episode, I speak to the actor Sean Dooley and his wife Polly. Sean is one of the most recognisable faces in British film and television, starring in Official Secrets and The Woman in Black on the big screen, as well as hit dramas Broadchurch and Gentleman Jack. He also produced an album for children in need with Polly called Got It Covered. It raised a million pounds. He persuaded some of the biggest names in acting to sing on it and, of course, appeared on the show itself, where he sang a Taylor Swift track only to be surprised by the star. Sean and Polly, herself a successful casting director, have been married for 14 years and have four children together. In our interview, they explain how their humble beginnings have shaped their attitude towards family finances and money and how they've instilled their strong social conscience into their children. The cult of celebrity is certainly not one Sean subscribes to. He'd ban the word. Instead, he wants his kids to see what he does as just a job, which might have worked too well as they never watch him on the telly. Hey, Sean and Polly, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thank you. This is so nice to do an interview with a couple, to speak to a couple, because, you know, I'm going to hear the truth. You can't. (laughs) Maybe I should step out. Yeah, I could step out and you could talk and then we can swap over (laughs) for that game show. Yeah. (laughs) The first thing I want to talk about is your respective childhoods. Because, um, you know, when you talk about kind of family finances and your approach to kind of earning through your careers and things, a lot of that comes from your learnings as a child, doesn't it? So did you have similar experiences as children? Did you come into this with the same background experiences? In some ways, quite similar and in some ways, totally different. So do you want to talk about yours first? Oh, you could do yours later first. (laughs) Um, So I, we didn't have very much money at all growing up, but then my I came from a family with lots of money. So the family had lots of money, but we actually didn't have any. And we'd have a lot of times with really not much money, struggling to put food on the table, and then might get taken up by my grandparents to Joe Allen's. And uh, so it was sort of a real contrast of, and my grandparents would, my granny loved to buy her food from Harrods and Selfridges and uh, and then we'd have these amazing, she'd throw these amazing parties and we'd have amazing times and then going back to a lot of beans on toast for the next month. And my gra- we lived in a tiny cottage, but it was on the edge of a cul-de-sac where the first house to be built was my granny's house, which was her wedding present from her dad, who was an architect, and the road was named after him. And she had a big detached house with a swimming pool. And then we were in this tiny little cottage at the end. So we were in the cottage, but obviously we got to use the pool. And so it was a real a real mix of a bit of a crazy upbringing. But did you ever feel, Polly, um, that that impacted your kind of anxieties as a child? Did you ever feel like we're going to run out of money? Or did you were you oblivious to the fact that there was this kind of... No, I was... I was aware of it and I think being the eldest I had two younger brothers I was very I would worry about it a lot and I'd worry about getting being at the shops with my mum and getting to the till and not being enough to pay for it and I'd you know maybe be putting food back (laughs) because I knew we wouldn't have the money for it always so yeah I was definitely aware of it and um and I think that in that's made me very sensible with money as an adult. We were talking last night about 
this whole podcast and this whole kind of the, these conversations. And it's that it's it's kind of difficult to talk about because we're kind of brought up in this country, aren't we? That money's a dirty word. You don't mm-hmm. talk about money. You don't talk about what you're doing and what you're earning. And we were both saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did live in a world where you know you did talk about your earnings more, and therefore you could you could get you know parity across the sexes and stuff like mm. that more if we all actually knew a little bit more but we're we're kind of bred to believe that it's not something you talk about and that doesn't matter what what class you are i think either no no, no money's a, it's a dirty thing to discuss you know it's kind of whereas but, the um, americans seem to be very proud and they like mm, to show off what they've really, got and it's really funny it's a, isn't it it's definitely a cultural and I thing think it, i think it also carries a lot of i think it can carry a lot of guilt and a lot of weight in, in some circumstances especially for me but um not that I've got lives, but I mean, just just having the haves and haves not, and, and what you've got, and what you haven't got, and what other people haven't got, that kind of thing. But um, I guess growing growing up for me, my, my dad, um, my dad was down the pit at fifteen, um, didn't finish school, and worked all his life down the pits until the until they shot. And for the first, uh, I guess. Um, it's funny, I was talking to my mum and dad this this morning and I wanted to get a, a feel of how it was before I was born, you know, when I was, before I was 10 and can really remember things. And um, they were just telling me how hand-to-mouth it was and how, you know, they much they budgeted, how much they had to sell a freezer to pay off uh, water rates and things like this. And I was kept really sheltered from that poverty in a way and from that, that existence. And then... Um, then the the big thing that hit for me was when I was 10 when the strike hit and we went from because my dad not only worked you know um, shifts uh, down the pit then he would also work Saturday and Sundays every single week and um, because he's a grafter and he put himself a bit through open university and stuff like this so this this idea of working and grafting and keep hammering at it has really seeped into my kind of core Mm. if, if you want but um and then during the strike, to have everything taken away from you and to drop to complete zero mm-hmm. and to suddenly be on school-free dinners, which as a 10-year-old is horrific when you've not been on them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? When it was those I was kids on them. on them. You were always on them, <laughs> you? see, what, What's really interesting, in many ways, I'd say I'd marry posh, but yeah, at the same time, Polly's, you know, been through, you know, a lot of stuff. Do you recognise the kind of anxieties that, that that Polly had? Did that? Did you feel that way as well? Were you worried? Not until the strike. Right. Not until the strike. Prior, prior to that, you know, we'd go, we'd go to centre parks, you know, for a you know holiday, you know, every year, and the, you know, there was the uh, working men's club trip to Blackpool. So I guess as a kid growing up, up, up until the age of ten, it was very kept from us and seemed everything good. I didn't know my dad was working seven days a week constantly. I just didn't see him every third week because he was on nights. So mm. that's when you didn't see him. Um, and so, no, I was kept sheltered until uh, until everything was taken away. And then until I'm at home and the bailiffs come round and remove the telly and the microwave and the, the fridge and in front of you and then apologise to you as a 10-year-old boy. This, I remember this giant of a man apologizing to me and saying, I'm really sorry, kid, and taking the stuff out. And I think going from okay to nothing was a big thing for me, I think, growing up. You had Christmas lunch. We had Christmas uh, dinner in the soup kitchen. Um, 
Yeah, lots of things like that. I mean, Russian miners sending presents over and incredible, really. Some of the theatrical and dramatic interpretations of that period, and I remember it really well. I was in Leeds and, you know, it was um, the minor strikes were, uh, you know, when you're a 13 or 12 year old and you're going through that, you think the world's going to end, don't you? Because at the same time, I think there was there was some kind of nuclear missile crisis going on as well. And you've got around you, you know, the police and people fighting. And then later on in life, when uh, um, theatrical adaptations of this period, there, there was this camaraderie, you know, kind of everybody's together. It's all because obviously that's the way the movies want to make it. And, you know, the dramatic, was there any of that? Did you go on Christmas Day? Did that feel like we're all in this together? Or did it feel like this is blinking miserable? No, I definitely remember people pulling together. I mean, for, in, for instance, uh, in order for my sister to be able to come home from hospital, we had a strike baby, what's called a strike baby, uh, my littlest sister, uh, born during the strike. And in order for her to come home, social services said we had to have a bunker full of coal and we had to have cupboards full of food. So the community around us uh, rallied together and they filled our bunker and they filled our cupboards. I remember it really, really well. They came around, they checked, and they allowed my mum to bring uh, Kimberly home from hospital. Um, and then a couple of days later, everybody came back and they took back their, you know, their sack of coal and their particular cans that were marked underneath with their names. So in that sense, there was a, a definite kind of coming together with everybody going through the same um, process in a way and going through the same struggles. It was very, it was very, div- I mean, you know, the, you know, the miners united will never be defeated. It was very united in a way against the, your whole, the common enemy in a way. Your whole village you know, was going through it. Yeah, yeah, that was the difference. Yeah, the whole, everybody. Everyone was, was no, in the yeah. same position. Yeah. So with all that in mind, and both of you coming from different but quite insecure financial backgrounds, it's interesting that you have careers <laughs> that, you know, are not a dead cert, you know, but I guess that is because if you're an artist, you can't deny that, right? So was there any dilemma for you, Sean, you know, assuming it was an interesting kind of conversation you had with them? It, yeah, it was It was really interesting. I, um, my passion as a kid, I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be a big animal vet. And... Um, I, because of struggles with exams and and, uh, not being able to deal with nerves and things like this, um, I went to pieces on all my GCSE exams and ended up with one when I I needed seven or eight. (laughs) A few more, a few more. (laughs) And so suddenly my hopes of uh, becoming a vet were were dashed. Um, So what happened for me was a a youth theatre company in Barnsley, I used to do amateur dramatics with them. They felt I should become an actor. It was never anything, it's not my world. It's not what people like me should do. And I, I still struggle with the, with the imposter syndrome um, because it's not, it's never, you know, it's not on the, on the list of things you can do from where I'm from. It's not there. Um, and they came to me and they said, we should think you should become an actor. They, they applied and, and got me an audition date for a BTEC course, because I, obviously I couldn't do A-levels, um, uh, in drama. And they gave me Harold Pinter as a caretaker, highlighted a speech and said, read this, learn that, go here this day and audition. So they, they hand, as far as I'm concerned, that those two people handed me everything I have right now. They handed me my, my career, my family. Everything I have is down to that one moment when those people decided to put that book in my hand. They could have done that to 20 people and they might not have taken the opportunity. You took that opportunity, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I I went home to my dad and I said, look, I don't know what to do. I was was properly, Gabby, devastated at, at my results and the fact that my whole life was done because I couldn't be where I wanted to be. And I told him about this um, 
um, th- this company thinking I should become an actor. And he said, bearing in mind the strike had finished and the pits were slowly being um, culled and taken away. And my pit, our pit, which is the brassed off pit, um, uh, they uh, th- that had a couple of years left before it was pulled down. And my dad said, look, you are going to be unemployed no matter what you do. You may as well be unemployed doing something you like. Wow. So those were his words. And, and the idea of, you know, uh, you know, if the pits had been open, I, you know, I might have settled and just gone, that's my, that's what I'm doing. That's my lot. And I would have just done it. And in, both of them really supportive and just went, look, it's, it's a mess. And I guess he was coming to, you know, working from the age of 15 down there and giving absolutely sweat, blood and tears to it. And then having it removed, I think probably gave him perspective and went, what's the point? You know, if this can happen to me and this, you know, then have a dream and chase it and, 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 and go for it. The, the nature of your job, Sean, is that it's feast or famine, isn't it? And it's that kind of feeling that you might be working for six months, but then you don't know. I mean, you're now at a level in your career where on the outside, it would appear that you just turn down roles every day and you've got telly coming at you, film, whatever, you know, you want. But I guess I know I know a lot of actors, and I, and I know that's actually not the reality it's, half it's the time, is it? Completely. I mean, you still have, and what tends to happen is that if you do something quite big and high profile, like I've just done uh, recently, it then drops away, and you kind of go, right, this is it, this is going to snowball now, and then you don't work for three, four, five months, and we're, we're quite used to me not earning for three or four months. We're, we're really, yeah. really um, frugal in the sense that we. We, we live to the basic of what we need. We don't, uh, we, we've got lots of friends who, you know, if the problem is with my job is if you, if you spend when you earn, you've then got nothing because you've got to, you've got to, you've got to prepare for those periods, you know, that when, when you, when you're not going to earn. But do you have a certain amount that you kind of want, you have to keep a buffer almost? Is that how it works? I think a lot, a lot of people, a lot of actors I know try and get a few months that they've got in the bank that right. they know they know they can they can survive three or four months without without working um and that's kind of that's always been ever since when i when i first started when i first started um like 21 22 i immediately set up two accounts and to my agent i went you've got to put in 30% of everything I earn into this other account so that I knew I had my taxes. So I knew that was going elsewhere and I wasn't touching it. And then that could pay for taxes. And at the end of every year, I had a little little, little bonus mm-hmm. come, come back to me. So even back then, I think I was really aware of um, that this is not a career that earns. And at any minute, I mean, th- this is a problem. I know it looks to everybody that, yeah, I'm never off telly, blah, blah, blah. Voice is never off telly. But still, you know, you, you still, I'm, you know, you know, quite a few auditions into getting no's at the mm. moment. Do you know what I mean? And that's mm. unfortunately the skin you've got to grow in order to be able to 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 deal with that. And when you've got four kids and a mortgage, it gets hard, and it also gets hard. I think what the what the main difficulty is is saying no to the things you don't want to do. That's mm. the difficulty because you might go, there's a particular job come in. I don't want to do that. I feel like it's underselling me or it's not quite where I want to go or what I want to do. But I've got bills to pay. And and so it's hard. So you do, you know, you that's just a that's the a sacrifice yeah. you always take. But I but I have to be honest, Polly has always, always, always said to me, No, you have to 
stick to your guns. You have to be you. You have to be the person you want to be. Will manage. Will get through. Da, 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 da. It's a lot easier, I think, when you've got a partnership. We've we've always very much been a, been a, been a partnership. Where, you know, a job comes in, um, and we'll sit down together and we'll go right. Should we? And we we use kind of we. We go. Should we do this? That it means I'm away for so long. You've got the kids on your own for so long. Blah blah blah. This is the money. You know, and it's a open conversation about whether or not we should do this as a family. So it's never been. My career has never been purely my career. It's all based around us as a family. Can we take this on? What does it mean? And what are the positives that we can take out of it as well? Often, wherever I go to film, that's that's where the kids go on holiday. So because we then know I'm going to be there. We're set up. I've got a hotel or a flat. Polly brings the kids out and, you know, that's we then holiday there. Yeah. So. Quite, I quite like you going away sometimes. And she also quite likes me going away sometimes. Yeah. I've not been away for a while, so she's getting a little bit tetchy at the moment. She's like, are you going to get a job? Have you, as a team, sometimes gone, do you know what, this isn't the perfect job, but right now we need this job? Yeah, there's been a couple. There's been a couple. I'll not say which, but there's been a couple that I wouldn't mind removing from my CV. <laughs> if I could just go back and go, yeah, let's, let's, let's drop that one. Um, yeah, yeah, there is, and there's got to be. And I mean, there was one that I really, really, really didn't want to do, and I was absolutely, utterly peppered. Uh, and I said yes, took the job. I was awful in it, but um, I, I said yes, took the job. And then a week later, I got a really big job. And I was like, I didn't need to do it. I didn't oh. need to take the job. Um, but, you know, I, I said to do it, and it is a, it is a blight on, on, on my acting. It's awful. Do you... Do you- Oh, remember at the beginning of your career ever getting advice from other actors about finances and I think it was learning on the job and again like 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 I said at the beginning I think everybody's so scared to discuss money that that you know any actors who were more established and working compared to a younger actor would be too scared to bring up that in case you know the the the, the amount you're earning comes up and then you discover how little you're earning compared to them or or, or whatever so I think there's often a, a fear around discussing those things. I remember, you know, things like somebody said, "You've got to get an equity pension," which is equity our, our union, and I did that, and that was a, that was a really good thing to have done. And so I now pass that on to a lot of people. But I sound like a dad. I meet these young kids, and I go, you know, on on um, it's a sin and things like that. I meet them. I go, right, hi, I'm Sean. Have you got your equity pension sorted out? Right, I'll make a phone call for you because so I, I you know, I very much feel like a, a dad to a lot of younger kids like that. I think also putting your taxes aside is really handy, isn't it? Because sometimes you get that wage and you think, oh, you think, I've, got I've got all this money. £1,000 spending. But and you actually, go, you, you, you haven't. haven't. You've, You've only got so much of that money yeah. to spend and yeah. the rest of it needs to go. And actually, if that money never comes into your bank account and it goes into a separate bank account and you don't ever see it, um, it's a lot easier not to spend it, I think. No, and also as well, because, because you know, like, like you know, Gabby, you know, your agent takes a particular amount and you know there's a lot of outgoings prior to you even earning it's funny you know i think um it's probably slightly off uh, subject matter maybe i don't know or maybe it is useful but i think now if i was me now back at that time with my dad there's no way i could enter this mm. profession there's no way i could have taken that that risk there's no way i could have uh, left home in barnsley and gone to some university left with 50, 60 grand's worth of debt to go out into a career as kind of unstable as this and as tentative as this, over, you know, and that I might not work in. 
you know, if say, so I've got, you know, sorry, we've got a 17, 17 year old boy and we will, you know, we'll push him and we'll, we'll support him. And we're probably, probably in a privileged position where we would be able to support him for a few years, being out there in the world, not earning and, uh, you know, and running and doing all the, the, these jobs in order, in order to be able to get where he wants to go. And so what happens is that the kids who can afford to survive with nothing for three, four years before they make something are inevitably going to come from, unfortunately, what I am now, which is middle-class families and middle-class and upper-class families. And and so what that means is your, kid from, your kids from your working-class background, your kids from where I'm from, they haven't got that support. So there's no way they can take that risk because it's a huge risk because it's a you can't go out there and not work you've then got to get a job and if you then get a job you're then not available for auditions you're not free and you look at your job and you go do you know what i'm earning that and i'm paying my rent am i going to risk it for a month's work in a theater and the fact that when you weigh that up they've got to pay for their courses now yeah i mean it's a it's definitely a different world and i think it's we're going to see a glut of of working class people yeah. in all aspects of, of, of the entertainment industry, not just actors. I know you both like to give back and you produced an album for children in need and got all your acting kind of pals involved in that. Is there, is there anything the industry can do, do you think, to help make sure that, that it doesn't happen, that we don't see a generation of actors who only come from privileged backgrounds, who only offer a certain set of experiences? They've only seen life through a certain prism, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely, and, and and looked through particular lenses and different social backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different places people are coming from. Any of that can can only but add to our experience and our enjoyment as a viewer. The only thing we could do is is set up so we've got apprenticeships and the apprenticeship schemes come mm. back. I remember when my dad always going when I was a kid going, they've got to bring back apprenticeships because it doesn't exist. And so kids who felt they could do something else, kids who were like good at woodwork, good at, good at engineering, they could get apprenticeships, earn a bit of money and hone those talents. And I think what we need is apprenticeship schemes within, within our, our industry, industry yeah. that reach out, pay these kids a wage. Because often what happens is, you know, I talk about runners. So runners, uh, you know, come come onto sets and and you know, and they're the backbone of any everything, and they do everything, and they're there first, you know, a couple of hours before you are, and they're running the whole thing, and they're brilliant. But they're often paid very, very, very little. Expected to have a car, expected to be able to drive wherever they go, and that automatically puts them in a particular band width of society. And the yeah. I mean, the album that we made, we we, we it, it was one of the best things we've ever done. We, we raised yeah. nearly a million pound for children in need which just from an idea and then run from this office where we are now in our garden, um, it was it was brilliant. And, and I think often all of us, when you're in a position to give back, we all do want to give back. When we reached out to all our mates, they immediately wanted to give back. And I think we are as a society, people who tend to want to give back, to help, to you know throw the ladder mm. down rather than pulling it up behind them. I, I'm hoping that we did a, an ITV drama um, called Innocence, uh, it was on recently, and two of the leads were myself and there were more leads but two of the leads was me and uh, Catherine Kelly and we're both from Barnsley you know I knew her dad growing up mm. we're both from the same place and mm. it's one of the proudest things I've ever done because I'm kind of I, I feel like you can't be what you can't see and for any of those kids in, in Barnsley going they're from where I'm from they've done it so therefore it's something that I could do and that that makes me feel really, really good that I can, that I, I can be a lead on an ITV drama, and some of the kid back in Barnsley might look at it and go, "Well, if he can do it, maybe I can." 
And do your kids, do you think, um, Polly, compared to your upbringing, do you think your kids feel more secure about the kind of, you know, going out into the world? Do they have the same kind of concerns that you did? Or do you feel like they, because of your relative affluence, are making decisions in a different way? You know, do they see the world differently? I think so. But I think they're also very aware of where we are backgrounds and where we've come from. And I think they, they're really good at appreciating what they've got on the whole. Definitely, yeah. They're um, not spoiled, are they? They're not... No, and they also sometimes, they'll ask for something and go and look it up and go, oh, actually, that's a bit expensive. Okay, I'll go. They're not, they're not bothered about designer clothes or things like that. And um, they're quite grounded, I'd say. When, um, where you, uh, do you remember the story? When, when um, our eldest was uh, really little, um, about five or six, the ice cream story. Do you remember? Um, Polly had said, I'd, I'd gone away to work. And the eldest said, um, um, where's daddy gone? And he's gone, he's gone to work. And then he was like, I don't want him to go. Why can't he stay here? And we've always got, gone, look, the house, this is this is how we pay for the house. This is how we pay for food that's on your table. They say, pay for your clothes. Often our clothes are hand-me-downs from the other kids. But, <laughs> you know, this is, and so we've always made him aware that, by going off to work and you missing dad or when uh, Polly goes to work, that then that enables everything else um, to, to happen. But then Polly went to the ice cream van and was getting our eldest daughter an ice cream. And um, she she went, do you want one? And he said, no, no, no. Because then daddy doesn't have to work as much. Oh. So he gave the ice cream back because oh. he felt that that one pound twenty five or whatever it was would mean I didn't have to go away for as long. <laughs> We, we've also been very, very mindful as well with, especially my section of work, to not have it um, that it, it's not lauded in any way, that it that it is just a job, that I am just going out to work, um, and that it doesn't. That there's nothing special about what I do. It's purely that I go to work to earn this. So they've, we've always drilled in a, a thing of that it's just work and that it's not. You know, it's not quiet now, guys. Daddy's got to learn learn a speech. Do you know what I mean? It's never, it's never. You know, you know, you go out of the house. Too much though, because they the never watch anything. Is, they don't do. watch anything of it now. And even it's a I was like, oh come on, guys, please at least watch this. I'm like, no, I can't be bothered. <laughs> so yeah, they don't watch anything now. We've drilled it too far, but it's definitely gone too far. <laughs> it has gone too far. Yeah, but we've um, but it's, so so it's, as far as they're concerned, I know their dads off the telly and get recognised and stuff like that. But I think. They don't hold it in any kind of esteem, which is what yeah. we wanted. They don't. This word "celebrities" is the word I would have removed from the dictionary completely because mm. I, I hate the word. Um, uh, and I think it's, um, I think it's important that they've grown up going. It's just work, and work is work regardless of whatever you do. And just finally, um, it's been so fascinating and brilliant talking to you both. Uh, but in terms of parts that you have played or might be playing in the future that have anything to do with money and and wealth, you know, that have been interesting to you. And it maybe has given you a different insight into your thoughts on finance and money. Have there been any that you can think of? I don't know. Is there? I tend to not play push people or people <laughs> with money. I tend to play, <laughs> I tend to play kind of... Um, I can't think of anyone. I can't think if there's been a, a character that... I often I often play characters who are cleverer than me, um, and that's really interesting. So that would be a similar kind of feel in a way. But 
Um, and I have to think that's quicker than I would think. Down, and that's probably because I put myself down. Yeah. But my big thing as an actor has always been, I won't play a character unless I can justify their actions, unless I can, uh, you know, that I will, that I can defend them in court in a way. So there's certain characters that I won't play because I don't want to get my head into that world or I don't want to think about who, who what's making them tick and who they are. So I avoid particular um, characters because I'd have to find the good in them and I'd have to find the series of events that have led them to be the, the person they are. Um, and I'd have, to, I'd have to read it like that, just like playing you know, a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Myron Jobson was listening in there. Uh, Myron, a personal finance campaigner from Interactive Investor. And I know, Myron, you really resonated, or it really resonated with you, that the communication issue with regard to kids and talking about finance within the family. It's so interesting, isn't it, hearing people's childhood experiences and how that feeds into their, their attitude towards money as an adult. Yeah, most certainly. I think Sean hit the nail on the head when he said that money is a dirty word in some cultures. You know, I, I grew up in the household where or single parent household where mum's gone in and she's quite strict in that regard. And any conversations about money was met with a swift, none your business, I'm sorting it. But it's just so important to get your children involved in money conversations from such a young age because it helps to foster better financial literacy uh, within mm. them from such a young age. Yeah, there's there's attitude is one thing, isn't it? You know, kind of seeing what how your attitude to money is and also then getting a little bit deeper into that in terms of seeing how a family house budgets its a household budgets its its finances is really important. And I think Polly or Sean at one point had said about how their kids suddenly realize the value of money when they start working, which is also really important. It's quite interesting. I have a three year old myself um and yeah she she can say a few words um but I, I do try to talk about money, about the value of money. When we go to shop, one of the first things she says when we enter the shop is, can I have this, can I have that, you know, be it a toy or a chocolate. But I try to explain to her the, the value of money and the importance of actually understanding that you can't get everything you want. And there's also an opportunity cost. So if she gets a chocolate now, she might not get a chocolate, you know, later on. But it's quite interesting, you know, more broadly. Like, So we looked into the whole issue of people talking about money with their family and friends as part of our Great British Retirement Survey last year. And um, part of the finding is that only 11% of people consulted their family or friends um, about for advice on money. And a fifth of couples admitted to lying to their partner um, about money, which is, I suppose, very concerning. Yeah, that's a, that's a very high number. 20% of people not quite telling the truth, uh, probably about their expenditure or what they're doing with their cash. Let's talk about specifics then about what parents can do for their children. You know, what where can they find the best uh, investment opportunities or ways to kind of help save for the future. Obviously, Polly and Sean have got four children, you know, and that's uh, potentially very expensive going into further education. I think the most obvious option is a junior ISA. And so parents can open a junior ISA on behalf of their child um, from birth, you know, from birth of their child. And they can invest as little as £25 a month into junior ISAs. And we typically say that it's better to invest rather than put the money into a cash savings because um, stock market has a great history of outstripping the returns of, say, cash savings. 
And plus, um, if you're if you're investing from the, the, um, the when your child's born until the age of 18, there's a long investment time horizon for the money to grow, to work hard, really. Um, so yeah, no, that's a really obvious option. And but one thing that parents need to remember is that once a child hits the age of 18, they can use the money as they see fit. So some parents might hope that they use that sum to go towards their university education, but they the child might decide to use it to go on holiday to Las Vegas, for example. <laughs> you know, hopefully not. Hopefully I have a, a proper conversation with their child. But one thing parents should also consider if they're worried that their child might blow the cash at the age of 18 is putting the money into a designated account. So here the, the parents don't have to give the money to the child, but they're putting into an account separate from their own investment account um, on behalf of their kids. Um, and they can drip free that money to their child as and when they see fit, really. So there are ways to make sure it perhaps doesn't all get blown on, on a car or a trip to Las Vegas. Um, and what, what other um, products are out there at the moment and interesting um, schemes do you think that the parents should be looking at or families should be looking at? It, maybe not necessarily products legs but i think parents should really looking at like budgeting you know they should really involve their children um, in conversations about budgeting um so some parents might um, be saving for a trip to disneyland for example and they can get their kids to get involved so the kid might want to buy something um, from the shop at disneyland that might cost um, a significant amount and they can explain to a child that right yet yeah, we are saving collectively to go to Disneyland. If you want this special, say Mickey Mouse um, doll that costs an arm and a leg, probably if you get it from directly from Disneyland, you have to save your money now, you know, and you have to save often. And you can also um, add incentives, for example. So if you um, save one pound within I don't know three weeks, um, that's really uh, modest. But you know, if you save a certain amount within a certain period, you might top it up. To help you know foster that savings mentality. Yeah, I think remember my parents telling me they would double whatever I managed to save towards my first car, which um, they probably knew was never going to be a very large amount. <laughs> I didn't have the opportunity to be saving that much money. I was a schoolgirl, but it still made me then appreciate, you know, kind of how much it was going to cost to. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's trying to get kids to understand when suddenly they have to part with their own money. Uh, they realise how expensive it is to, to live. But it's quite interesting in this day and age where like the advent of like buy now, um, pay later services um money is almost not trivial but it's so accessible and if you don't have great financial education you don't you won't use those services appropriately and it could be a slippery soap into debt and if your first financial experience is basically slipping into debt it doesn't bode well for the rest of your um, adulthood and your relationship with money that's very uh, yeah scary thing, isn't it, when that happens? So, uh, Myron, thank you very very much. It's been really interesting talking to you and uh, you sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. Thanks for listening. If you have time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. See you next time. <laughs>